0: This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today I am just tickled pink to be joined by Dr. David Wright. Dr. Wright, I met a few weeks ago here in the city of Chicago at the University of Chicago's first annual Neurotrauma Symposium, where Dr. Wright was an attendee, a speaker, a panelist, and Interestingly, for the listeners of the show, Dr. Wright is an emergency room physician. As you'll hear, um, Dr. Wright has done a lot of work in some large network clinical trials relevant to neurosurgeons and neurotrauma. But as soon as I saw him on the panel, I I ran up and I grabbed him and invited him on the show because I thought, how interesting could it be to talk with someone outside of our field about how painful it can be to deal with us in the emergency room? Uh, so, Dr. Wright, uh, he is the chair of emergency medicine at Emory University in Atlanta, a program near and dear to our heart. We've had Dr. Barrow on a few times on the show. He's a great friend of the program, um, but very excited to drill into this topic today. Dr. Wright, welcome to the show. For our listeners, uh, say hello and let us know how you wound up with this job.
1: Uh, somewhat sounds like an interview for, uh, for a job, but um, <laughs> yeah. well, I. I I started uh in uh, in high school uh before high school um my mother was ill with breast cancer and um and almost lost her uh, at the age of 12. Oh, wow. And uh, so I think that set me on a course towards uh science or medicine and uh and so um you know at the time I was just really mad at breast cancer and wanted to figure out a way to 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 solve it. Um, so was it wasn't clear that medicine was what I was going to go in, but um, I, I got a job at a local hospital as an orderly. Uh, a lot of you uh, in medicine won't know what an orderly is, but uh, that essentially is someone who cleans bedpans um, and does whatever the nurse tells you to do. Uh, it was not a very glorious or glorified job, but uh, it was a job and it um, exposed me to... Um, Medicine uh, in in many ways, um, both uh, the empathy and the care for the individual patients, um, but also the really tough sides of it. Uh, so uh, from that point forward, I, I wanted to go into medicine, and I uh, uh, went uh, did pre-med at Stanford University, uh, and then <clears throat> um, uh, went did a year of research uh, as a Howard Hughes Fellow before I went into. Um, the University of Alabama at Birmingham Medical School, UAB, as we call it, Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, four four years there. Um, Interestingly, at that program, um, surgery was probably the area that I was most interested in going in, Uh, but I did a rotation in a small um, town that uh, my brother-in-law was a family practice doc in. And um, at the time, the family practice doctors did almost everything, including some of them, uh, did C-sections. Um, and, uh, they covered the emergency department in this small hospital. And, um, it was working in that emergency department, not having any idea what was about to back up to your doors, uh, when you heard the ambulances coming and not having a whole lot of backup behind you. It was really just you in a small hospital. The surgeon was in bed. You'd have to call him in if you needed him. Um, there was really no one else there to support you. Uh, but there was an incredible thrill to that that just sort of bit me, and that's when I decided, okay, I want to do. I want to do this, whatever this is. Uh, we didn't have an emergency medicine program at UAB when when I decided to go into emergency medicine, and there were only four or five programs in the country that were um, that were considered. Um, of, of high quality. And so uh, that was that was sort of what led me into that.
0: Um, yeah. So so maybe um, if we could take a moment, because I'm a history nut and especially medical history, not just the science of it, but just the way things naturally develop, even the contemporary era, and in particular, the development of specialties and subspecialties. So maybe for some of our younger listeners who might be in college or in medical school now, talk a little bit about that scenario you're describing where before it was the emergency department, when it was just the emergency room and yeah. who was working there, were there specialists that only worked in the emergency room? Or I know that there was a period in America where it was just, you know, the internal medicine docs or whoever was around would pick up shifts and, and cover it. Talk about the roots of emergency medicine in this country um, before, you know, the the fully formed, fully fledged specialty it is today.
1: Yeah, it, it wasn't that long ago, frankly. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> 1972 was the first program, uh, the first training program. That was the University of Cincinnati, and um, you know w- what led to this was a lot of uh, the the Vietnam War and wars before that, where uh, organized, um, very well trained individuals focused on the acute first hour, now called the golden hour, um, of care for patients. Um, And that um, in previous days, really, the emergency room, as it was called at the time, and we still call it emergency room, um, was a place where your primary care physician would meet you if you were sick, and they would make a decision on whether they needed to admit you or not. Um, And uh, occasionally, a specialist would come in and see you in that emergency in that emergency room and in literally it was usually one or two rooms Um, so it was not until the development of emergency departments um, and emergency medicine as a field that the area obviously grew quite a bit the training grew uh, quite a bit but the the other point of that is there was a national call because um, people were not doing well when they had acute unscheduled care Um, and there was really nowhere for them to turn. And they would go to the hospital, they would meet a physician there, but these physicians weren't trained uh, to take care of uh, cardiac arrest or acute trauma or any of these other things. And it was really um, that realization and the understanding of, of how uh, systems for healthcare and systems for emergency care developed out of the, uh, out of the wars uh, that had come prior uh, and the, an incredible number of lives that they were able to save, uh, when they concentrated, um, intense care early on, uh, in, uh, in injury and, and even in, uh, disease deterioration, um, in emergency medicine, a lot of people, um, and I'll use a word poo-pooed it <clears throat> because it wasn't based on an organ. It's not the brain. You know, neurosurgeons have the brain, cardiologists have the heart, uh, liver doctors have the liver, GI doctors have GI. So there was no organ system to frame the science around. But the science of emergency medicine really is time. And it is that initial mm-hmm. one to two hours where a, a disease um, is in its acute deteriorating stage. And if you don't intervene in that in that stage, the outcomes obviously downstream are much, much worse and much, much greater and the science the cool thing about this is that the science of that acute period where the disease is deteriorating is vastly different than the science of chronic clinical care medicine so take stroke for example the science of stroke and the treatments that we use now to intervene for stroke those were all developed because emergency medicine existed yes they were collaborations with neurology neurosurgery um and other disciplines, but the uh ability to intercede very early in the course of that uh, of that disease um is what made the positive outcomes in clinical trials because had you not intervened early, we wouldn't have any positive trials so um mm. That science is very different. The pathophysiology is different. Um, How you manage it is different than a chronic disease. How you manage a hypertensive emergency is far different than how you manage hypertension. How you manage someone who's in cardiac arrest is far different than how you manage any other cardiovascular uh, disease. And there was really no knowledge or very limited knowledge around that because people usually didn't make it to the hospital. And if they did, there wasn't a team of people to help. keep them alive uh, until they could move to the next step.
0: You know, that's really fascinating. And I, I think if uh, if the power grid went down and this conversation ended right now, I would take away that nugget of wisdom right there that in emergency medicine, your specialty is time. Uh, that's very well put. But, it, you know, in discussing that, you bring up the issue of stroke and you you started to rub elbows with the, the neurosurgery of it all here. So I am very curious because... Uh, For many of our listeners, Dr. Wright, who may not know of of you because they're within the field of neurosurgery, uh, you've been very active specifically within neurological emergencies. You've done work in the setting of concussion. You've done work in the setting of more severe TBI. Um, You're you're part of the major trial networks around the country for that. Um, and, And I wonder what sparked that interest for you in the neurological emergencies within emergency medicine?
1: Well, the brain... I think the brain is interesting. Um to me it's the last frontier when it comes to medicine. <clears throat> and um I I probably um, you know, um uh march uh side by side with neurosurgeons and neurologists when it comes to that. Uh it's it's just a fascinating, fascinating um uh, construct by God. It's just incredible. Um and so um you know, that's you know, obviously that's that's one thing. Uh, The other was um, uh, circuitous. Uh, It was, uh, I started my first faculty position in emergency medicine at Emory University after coming out of my training at the University of Cincinnati. And um, I was actually recruited as a researcher. I had done a number of years of research prior to that uh, and had a number of publications. So in emergency medicine, When you had a number of publications, everybody um, looked at you as if you were the researcher. So, um, you know, again, it was early. It's early in the field. Not a lot of publications uh, were out. And you remember, you're talking to an old man here. So when I say um, when I started, that was 30 years ago. Um, So the specialty really was young then. uh, And there really were only, you know, a few really great centers uh, for training. But when I came to Emory, uh, I ran into a gentleman by the name of Don Stein, as I was uh, looking at what my research focus was going to be coming out of residency, and uh, frankly, I I thought I was going to study wound healing, um, because that was I had all of my basic science work had been in hmm. molecular and cell biology, and I had stud- studied extracellular matrices, um, and what really got me hooked into research was. Uh, discovering the uh, the protein that uh, is in Marfan syndrome and taking the first electron microscopy pictures of it uh, that had ever been seen. And so it was like landing on the moon, being the first person to ever lay eyes on that structure was uh, thrilling. So that got me set off into into doing research. Um, but when I met Don Stein, he kept telling me about this, um, this story around progesterone and um, how his female animals were doing better than his male animals after an injury and that they were pursuing why that was the case. And they thought it was due to progesterone. And um, and um, part of the eloquent way they studied that was looking at uh, rats when they were pseudo-pregnant and uh, showed that, yes, indeed, when progesterone was really high, that they would even uh, did better, so had even better outcomes. And so that, you know... <clears throat> got me really curious, obviously with my basic science background, Uh, but also working in one of the busiest trauma centers in the country. It was, um, you know, trying to tell family that um, there really is nothing that we can do for their, their family or their loved one after a head injury. Um, And we would just have to wait and see. And it was kind of like the way we used to treat stroke, right? Where we really didn't have anything to offer them. They just sort of sat in the corner and we would say, well, we'll see how they move in one to two weeks. Um, so that clinical experience of seeing devastation related traumatic brain injury and how common it was, it was just incredible. Um, and then running into Don Stein who had what he thought was a therapy that could be taken to the clinic and he was a PhD, so he couldn't bring it into the clinic. But as an MD, I had the, um, the fortune uh, and the ability to to work with him and a lot of very smart people to write the first clinical trial in um uh for the use of or testing uh, the use of progesterone for traumatic brain injury and that was protect one so that was the first one that we did
0: and then once you got a taste for uh the, the that sort of research and a taste for clinical trials there was no turning back huh
1: well, I was. Uh, if, if you're referring to interaction with neurosurgery, I was forced into the room. Forced <laughs> um, exactly. If I wanted, if I wanted to do traumatic brain injury research in the clinical space, um, I had to get along with neurosurgery because um, it's uh, it, it's in your wheelhouse. It's it's your domain.
0: Yeah. Um, well, let, and- let's talk about getting along with neurosurgery a little bit. And and as I alluded to at the beginning of this conversation, uh, we have. Uh, neurosurgeons and affiliated professionals, but predominantly neurosurgeons who listen to this show of various levels of seniority, as, as you could say, people with an interest in college or medical school, people within residency, fellowship, uh, and all the way up the chain of seniority among attending. So the relationship between emergency department physicians and neurosurgeons, I would guess, varies wildly depending on which level of training the two interacting individuals are. Because um, we could say with a laugh, sometimes there's friction at two in the morning when residents uh, are talking to other residents who are all on call. But obviously, as we all get older and calm down a little bit, there's good friendly uh, friendly relationships there. But having now paid our homage to the history and tipped our hat to how wonderful the brain is, obviously neurosurgeons want to talk about ourselves. Uh, and, and as I said, we have a lot of friends at Emory. Dr. Dan Barrow has been on the show a few times. Nick Bulis has been on the show a few times though. Hopefully with his practice, uh, you probably don't interact with him very much. I hope, uh, he does functional neurosurgery, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about in the course of your career there at Emory, what's it like calling neurosurgeons at two in the morning on your end of the phone when you need to get us to come see someone?
1: Look, it's amazing what you can do when you put your ego aside um and uh and just focus on why you're there, and that's to care for the patient and um and and that's true of any specialty uh I think I heard Dave Quanco say it on a previous podcast um and you know some of my best friends are uh neurosurgeons and neurologists, and I have um uh, had wonderful wonderful interactions with them. Does that mean that on some nights I have to argue uh, and that I have to have um, very tough conversations? No, we all get tired. We all get grumpy. Um, You know, I know um, people think emergency medicine is easy because it's shift medicine. But anybody that wants to come work on one of those shifts with me would go, how the hell do you do this day in in and day out? Uh, Because it is nonstop firebrand work. And uh and you don't get a break to go to the cafeteria. You don't get to do, you know, it's there's no moments of rest. It's one patient after another continuously coming in. Um and so yeah, we all get tired and um and we, you know, sometimes our specialists, and this is not neurosurgeons uh, alone, this is every specialist, want us to know a little bit more than sometimes we know. Um, you know, we're yeah. emergency medicine physicians, we know a little about a lot, but we don't know a lot about any one individual thing. So there, there are going to be differences as to, you know, well, we're calling you because we're not sure, or we're calling you just because we really need a little assurance that what we thought was true is true or that how we should manage this patient, uh, okay. that we should manage them. So, you know, it's and it's that understanding. And a lot of time if you just start out with that, that, you know, hey, I I know this may seem silly. I think this is what we should do with this patient. Do you agree? And that, that's all we're asking for sometimes. But um, again, I'll say at the end uh, uh, and repeat it, it is amazing what you can do when you put your ego aside.
0: Right. And, you know, I will say as, you know, if you ask anyone here at Rush where I work, I was as much of a fire-breathing dragon junior resident as the next guy, but something that I... Uh, something I learned very quickly in junior residency and tried to reinforce to those coming along behind me now. I I think I would, you know, a hundred times I would get a phone call and think to myself, really, they called about that? That's nothing. And what I soon realized was they're calling because I know it's nothing. And that's right. After the thousandth time I called cardiology for a nothing chest pain in somebody, I realized, oh yeah, I'm calling them because they're the ones who know that it's not a big deal. Uh, and that's their job to know. And it's my job to know in this situation. Um,
1: yeah. The neurosurgery residents used to bring the EKG to me to take a look at, you know, and <laughs> stick right. it from me. It was normal sinus rhythm. There was nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with it. And they go, is this OK? And yeah, sure. This is fine. Great. Thank you. Bring it to me anytime you need to. Yeah. So, you know, again, it's remembering why you're there. Right. We We all get tired. We all get punchy but remembering why you're there at the end of the day, when you start feeling your blood boil, just take a breath, just step back and say, okay, um, I get it. We're here for this. Now, you, you know, you're going to run into some lazy people on both sides. Um, and, um, uh, that, that's just human nature, but right. Um, you know, well, I,
0: I wonder then, um, Something I've, I've been trying to do more and more lately are some fun questions at the end of these things. So we'll, we'll start off easy. Um, you know, you said you like that feeling of uh, being in the emergency department. You never know what's going to come in the door and you're there waiting, ready to go. Is there a favorite pathology that you get to see in the emergency department? Is there something that when it comes through the door, uh, it, it perks your interest and, and you get excited to take care of it?
1: Trauma. <laughs> um, I've always loved trauma. Uh, and, um, you know, I think, uh, in part because it is a, um, a disease that, or injury, uh, is a condition that you awfully can inter- often intervene with very quickly, um, and make a huge difference in somebody's life, whether it be life or limb. And, um, you know, even though we, the the surgeons uh tout trauma as a surgical disease um it's actually not <laughs> um very few of the patients actually go to the or um and so a majority of trauma you take care of um don't don't need surgical intervention per se uh, they need trained trauma surgeons to take care of them i'm not saying that but um but it's a partnership um with trauma and with emergency medicine uh, and, um, the, I, I really enjoy, um, that, um, neurologically I, I enjoy, uh, stroke, um, uh, just because we're at a major stroke center and, um, I'm I have the advantage of seeing people do better, um, and profoundly better than, than what I saw when they first came in the door and that's rewarding.
0: Yeah. Well, okay. The perfect transition to my next question, because I was going to say, can you think of your favorite and least favorite reasons that you call neurosurgery? And so if your favorite is stroke, then what's your least favorite thing to call us about? Is it, is it shunts? Be honest.
1: It is not shunts, um, because that's pretty easy to work up. Um,
0: I would say cauda
1: equina is probably, uh, probably the worst. It's, you know, it's that back pain and somebody that's had back pain forever or, or at least, you know, days, weeks, they've probably yeah. seen a neurosurgeon or an orthopedist and they come in and they're a little bit weaker. And I'm like, Holy crap. Cause it's a 12 hour slodge. right? Trying to get an, an MRI trying to get somebody to come down and see them. you know, are they really weaker? Are they not really weaker? It, it's just, it's just difficult.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, Again, you know, it's, we're neurosurgery, it's all about us. So I'll again ask, and you could pick, you could pick best, worst, or both if you if something comes to mind, no names, but can you think of either the best or worst interaction you've had with a neurosurgeon in the emergency department and something that you either remember from that or that was instructive perhaps for the young trainees listening? <laughs>
1: i'm gonna take it outside of what you said um the best interaction with neurosurgeons that I have had um is is in the research arena uh it is um you know i've gotten it's so fortunate to work with some of the best neurosurgeons in the world uh jeff manley um I've spent many 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 hours with jeff alex vladka um David iconquo Andrew Moss uh, these are brilliant minds, uh, in at least in in trauma neurosurgery, which is the area where, where I focus um, and focus my research. And they're just wonderful human beings. And, um, and that's thrilling. And so anytime I get an opportunity, which is why they can't get rid of me on any of these guideline committees, <laughs> is because I just enjoy so much being around them. They're good people and they're brilliant scientists. Uh, and they're really, really skilled clinicians. And um, that's, that's really my thrill. Um, And that's why I stay so involved.
0: That's a beautiful sentiment. Um, I will point out for the residents listening, you know, you you speak about working with neurosurgeons and being on these committees and so forth. The trial Dr. Wright did not uh, mention, uh, you know, I was Enrich3, which, and the Enrich trials that have come out that he's an author on with, uh, with, Dr. Barrow as well, which are potentially going to be revolutionizing an entire sphere of neurosurgery. So definitely something to note about and to tip the hat for you, Dr. Wright. Um, I will also say uh, another honor, perhaps a dubious honor you have, is that you are the first emergency medicine physician on this podcast. Um, We've had guests who are not neurosurgeons, but uh, you are uh, far and away the first representative uh, from emergency medicine. And so I wonder uh, if you could speak to the medical students listening now. Um, I won't say make a pitch for emergency medicine because <laughs> I'm a neurosurgeon and this is my show and everyone should want to be a neurosurgeon. But I perhaps <laughs>
1: right? I, I wouldn't but, mind being a neurosurgeon if I hadn't had to spend seven years doing it. But OK, gotcha.
0: <laughs> there, ah, you're already making the pitch. Uh, but maybe you could describe, uh, and to be fair, we'll do both sides of the coin. And I'm actually I'm genuinely curious about your answer for this because you bring Uh, a very legitimate perspective to this issue, lots of experience, you run your department at a very prominent institution. If you're speaking to a medical student, what would you say are, what kind of person is best suited for emergency medicine? And on the flip side, who would you say this is not for you? What kind of qualities in a person do you, you, would you discourage them from pursuing emergency medicine?
1: Um, That's a great question. I think, um, there's a lot to unpack there, but I'll keep it simple. Uh, if you want to be the physician, uh, the utility physician that no matter where you are, uh, when people look around, if something's happening and they go, which doctor would you want with you, um, no matter where you are, um, it would probably be an emergency doc, right? Because, um, it's somebody you want who knows how to respond, uh, with very oftentimes little tools, little history, um, and, um, stabilize you, you know, for the experts. Um, so, um, that's, you know, that's the thing that, um, it's, it's really thrilling. Um, but, um, I think for people who, uh, get very anxious um, ab- about uh, being in a condition like that. I would probably say you, you might want to do internal medicine or, <laughs>
0: uh,
1: or something that's not quite so uh, fast where you have time to sit and think. Um, but um, emergency medicine is n- not for the faint-hearted and um, it requires you to think on your feet. Uh, it requires you to act without full sets of information, sometimes for the for the worse, sometimes for the better. Um, and uh and so that's um that's usually how I couch it when I'm talking to uh, emergency medicine uh wannabes. Um we're not George Clooney, but you know, um we um <laughs> we uh, some of what they did was 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 uh was like emergency medicine and fun.
0: Well said. Uh, well, Dr. Wright, again, thank you for your time coming on the show. Uh, that that was very enjoyable for me, especially unpacking the history of the development of emergency medicine as a specialty and charting your progress in your career, um, kind of organically finding yourself here so frequently working with us, obviously in the hospital, but also outside the hospital on the various uh, committees and and clinical trials that you participate in with the neurosurgical community. So thank you for everything that you've done and continue to do and in particular, for joining us on the Neurosurgery Podcast.
1: Thank you, JP. It was a delight.
0: disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.